Colossians chapter 3. I love this book. Uh, It's a powerful book. Um, And we're looking at verses 12 through 17. And and as we read these, I'm going to be reading again from the NASB tonight. Um, So hopefully that doesn't throw you off. But I I want to read these verses here in verses 12 through 17. The Apostle Paul writes, So, as those who have been chosen of God, holy and beloved, put on a heart of compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience, bearing with one another and forgiving each other, Whoever has a complaint against anyone, just as the Lord forgave you, so also should you. Beyond all these things, put on love, which is the perfect bond of unity. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called, in one body. And be thankful that uh, let the word of Christ richly dwell within you with all wisdom, teaching, and admonishing one another, with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing it with thankfulness in your hearts to God. Whatever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks through him to God the Father. The title of our lesson tonight is The Character of Conversion. The Character of Conversion. Biblical conversion is greatly downplayed. My greatest fear is that the church in America is largely filled with pew sitters who profess to know Christ without having ever been changed by the Spirit of God into a new creature. As one pastor put it, he says, it is impossible to encounter Jesus Christ at his word and not be changed. Throughout the New Testament, we find conversion language, uh, the change language. John records Jesus saying, except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Paul writes, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creature. The old things have passed away. Behold, new things have come. Even Peter also adds of the magnitude and the eternality of this conversion whenever he says, you have been born again, not of a corruptible seed which is perishable or imperishable, that is through the living and enduring word of God. It is entirely impossible to profess conversion and remain unchanged. What then is the character of conversion? And what we find here in uh, the Apostle Paul's letter to the Colossians, uh, we find this character of conversion. What is a Christian supposed to look like? What is a Christian supposed to sound like, act like, live like? What are their convictions supposed to be? It's all laid forth here in the third chapter of the book of Colossians. Colossians has a sister book, by the way. If you compare Colossians with Ephesians, it is very, very similar. Uh, Colossians is one of Paul's prison epistles, which means he was writing from a prison cell in Rome, uh, which only amplifies the, the magnitude of this letter? Could you imagine writing a letter from a locked-down prison cell beneath the streets in Rome or in a dungeon-like cell in Rome? 
uh, by candlelight. You're writing these wondrous, deep, beautiful truths about the Lord Jesus Christ, but you yourself are locked into a dank prison cell in first century Rome. Uh, quite remarkable. Paul begins this section with so, comma, that means we need to know what's going on before everything to this point. What does he mean whenever he says so, this conjunction that brings everything into order, what he's about to list here. Uh, so, as those, verse 12, who have been chosen of God. This is the church. This is the bride of Christ. This is the elect. Uh, your Bible may even read that. Those who are elect of God. Um, John MacArthur writes that no one is converted solely by his own choice, but by response to God's effectual, free, uninfluenced, and sovereign choice. And these are wonderful truths that, while they stretch the mind and the heart, they cause much rejoicing. Uh, again, election means, if you were to define it, it means believers are the objects of God's incomprehensible special love. End quote. This is how we begin. Paul is addressing not everyone in the world. He is addressing believers, solely believers. Unbelievers don't get it. Um, he's not talking universally. He's talking about those who have been chosen by God. What are they? Holy or sanctified, set apart, and beloved. We're beloved of God. Now notice this. This brings us to our second heading, this idea of putting on and putting off. He says, put on. Put on what? Put on a heart of compassion. And then he lists these wonderful characteristics. And this is our second heading. The first heading is conversion is God's choice. The second heading is conversion entails the putting off the old man. Uh, as I stated before, Colossians is a prison epistle. And we must keep in mind that Colossae is a very wealthy city. It was known for black wool. Has anyone ever seen a black sheep? You're like, yeah, it's me. No. Uh, the, the black sheep, it's a, it's, a, it's, a, uh, it's a dark animal. What's that, Mar? A stuffed one. A stuffed one, yeah. They're quite unique. Usually when you think of sheep, you think of a white wooly uh, animal. The black sheep is always the one that's like the black sheep. It's an outcast. But, but black, sheep, black wool was a, a, a hotly sought-after commodity in the ancient world, and it brought much wealth, and textiles brought much wealth to Colossae. Uh, and Colossae was also known for its dye. So they would dye these wools, and they would, they would export these wools, and, and it was quite a uh, wealthy city. It was older than the Syrian Empire, and if you are familiar with the turn with the name Artaxerxes. Where do we read of Artaxerxes in the Bible? Can anybody answer that for me? Where do we read of the uh, King Artaxerxes or King Xerxes? Esther. Esther 1.1. 1, 1. Uh, we find that there's the, the King Ahasuerus. Uh, he is King Artaxerxes. He, is, he is, has written that uh, historical accounts depict that he went through Colossae and he remarked at how wealthy this city was. So this is a very wealthy and pagan city. Uh, Colossae was plagued. The, the church at Colossae, the reason Paul is writing this letter is because it is plagued with heresy. This was a church that was given to legalism. Legalism is the idea that salvation is by ceremonial law-keeping or external action. That's legalism. Legalism is the idea that something that you do is what merits salvation. 
uh, it was quite prominent in the Church of Colossae. Also, there was just a mixture of this pagan mysticism, which, guys, by the way, there is much mysticism that plagues the majority of our culture today. It is alive and well, this pagan mysticism that is out there, this mystical idea of spirits moving and, you know, things being in your basement or the door closes here and people think that this is a, a, a whatever. Uh, they, they see a, a cardinal on a fence post and they think it's Aunt you know, whoever you fix it, there's this mysticism going on, even in the world around us today. People wish upon a shooting star. They read their horoscopes. They do these goofy things. It's, it has its origins in pagan mysticism. And there was, it was a prominent thing even in the Church of Colossae. Uh, but most of all, most of all, there was a heresy known as Gnosticism. Gnosticism. You would be surprised to see how much of the New Testament is devoted to refuting this heresy. This is quite prevalent in the first century. This was something that uh, that was. Oops, I spelled that totally wrong. I'm sorry. Oh boy. Gnosticism. Let me fix that for you. And I'm going to explain this a little bit because it only amplifies what Paul is saying here in the third chapter. This Gnosticism idea was, was, a, was a heresy that was infiltrating the Colossian church. It's the idea that God is good. How, how, we, we even today, um, we see elements of this even alive today. A lot of times people will, the Christians will greet each other with, hey, God is good. And then someone will answer with, all the time, you know, and, and they, they, they have this like cordial greeting there. That's kind of like this, this um, in-house Christian greeting. Uh, but, but at face value, when you consider Gnosticism, we see that that was exactly what the Gnostics would have said to. They would have believed that God is good. They believe that God is good, but uh, Jesus isn't God. They would say something like, God is good, but matter or universe is evil. Um, they would have a distorted view of creation. Um, also in Gnosticism was Jesus was merely a, one of a series of emanations descending from God, which ultimately lends itself to polytheism, a, a many God worship. Um, and being less than God, Jesus being less than God, would ultimately land one in a belief uh, of the denial of Christ's true humanity. And remember what 1 John says. Whenever 1 John is, and 2 John are teaching, and, uh, teaching us how to recognize false teachers, John says that anyone who denies that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is a false teacher, is antichrist. So, so these Gnostics would deny the fact that Christ had come in the flesh. They would deny the virgin birth. They would deny the resurrection, the bodily resurrection of Christ. And this, would also, uh, this, this form of Gnosticism would also um, require that one would pursue this secret higher knowledge in order to be saved. So if there's one thing you take from this, Gnosticism teaches that is the idea that you have to have some sort of mystical higher knowledge in order to find salvation. 
Something of a knowledge that is higher than Scripture. Now just think about this. If someone comes to you and they deny the sufficiency and authority of the Word of God, they will usually say something like, no, my experience is the driving factor in my understanding of who God is. So they'll deny the sufficiency of the Scriptures and the authority of the Scripture in order that they would promote their own idea of sufficiency, this higher knowledge that they have within themselves. So Gnosticism, again, I would say that uh, while antinomianism is on the rise in, in our current culture, I would say Gnosticism is quickly chasing that. Antinomianism, by the way, is the idea that there is no law. Now we can just do whatever we want. Um, I would say both of these factors are, are on the rise, and Paul addresses them clearly in the book of Colossians. Um, this, this idea of higher knowledge above Scripture, which was necessary for, quote-unquote, enlightenment, finding this enlightenment euphoric uh, position in one's life. Also included in Gnosticism was this rigid asceticism, meaning that you would have to hold to the letter. You would have to act a certain way, live a certain way in order to maintain your salvation uh, and the worship of angels. There's been a lot of interest in angels uh, throughout church history, even to the point where as Gnostics would worship angels. Um, some people have an overt affection for angels and it should be uh, placed into balance with, with the scripture uh, as we see them depicted in the Bible. Um, these would obviously be accompanied also with this uh, mystical experiences. And so you say, why did, why did you say all that? Uh, because what Paul is doing here in chapter 3 is he, he begins that 12th verse with, so. Everything that I've just described to you is going on in the, in the Colossian church. They have denied, many have denied the deity of Jesus Christ. And chapter one may be the climactic chapter in all the Bible that clearly reveals the deity of Jesus Christ, that Jesus is God. He is supreme. He is co-equal, co-eternal with God the Father and with the Holy Spirit. Uh, and in the same chapter, chapter one, we find the hope of the gospel, not higher knowledge, not academia. We have the hope that's in the gospel, that Jesus Christ, the Son of God, fully God, fully man, was born of a virgin, lived a sinless life, died in the place of sinners as their substitute, was buried in a borrowed tomb, where three days later he was resurrected from the dead. We have the hope in the gospel. And anyone who repents of their sin and believes in Jesus Christ has eternal life. That's, that's the hope of the gospel. That's the rejoicing we have in Christ Jesus. That's found in chapter one. Paul says, look, it's not higher knowledge. It's not a denial of the deity of Jesus Christ. It's not your esoteric uh, mysticism that you've been pursuing. It's the gospel. It's the hope of the gospel for salvation, uh, not some kind of higher knowledge that you have to pursue or, or some sort of uh, aesthetic lifestyle. In chapter 2, verse 9, we read that in him all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. There it is again, Christ amplifying and magnifying the fact that Jesus Christ is God in the flesh. And again in chapter 3, if you're still there in chapter 3, look at verse 8. <clears throat> but now you also put them all aside. Remember, this is still under the second heading, put off. You must put off. The character of, of a Christian, the character of Christ-like heart and attitude, there is a putting off. As fallen man, we 
put off or put aside all what? Verse 8. Put, this is what we put aside. We put aside anger, wrath, malice, slander, and abusive speech from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, since you laid aside or put off the old self with its evil practices. And what? Verse 10, and have put on. You see there's a putting off and there's a putting on with this character of conversion. You have put off this nasty evil. You've put off these things that do not mark the character of Christ in verse 10 and have put on the new self. And uh, who, who is being renewed to a true knowledge according to the image of the one who has created him, who created him. It is capital one, it is capital O, it is Christ who has created us a new creature. Do you see what's going on here? Paul is saying your conversion should be marked by a new character. It's not the same old man before coming into this new understanding as the Gnostics would say. We've arrived at this higher knowledge, this enlightenment, and now we have arrived. No, it is a putting off the old man, putting on the new man that is created after the one who has created him. This is the same language mirrored in the book of Ephesians. Ephesians chapter 4, you don't have to turn there, I'll read it to you. Verses 24 and 25, Paul writes there again, and put on the new self which is in the likeness of God, has been created in righteousness and holiness and of truth. What wonderful language. Created in righteousness and holiness and truth. It's the real deal. This is the mark of a character of a Christian, the mark of conversion. Therefore, verse 25 of Ephesians chapter 4, therefore laying aside all falsehood, speaking truth one to another uh, with his neighbor, for we are members of one of another. See, See, this is... How are we going to, one of the marks of a changed character is, is the marks of a changed heart. The, the, the changed heart that manifests itself in action, word, and deed. This brings us to the third heading. And now finally we're going to look at the elements of the character of conversion. Putting on the character of Christ. As verse 10 says, the transformation at salvation. The transformation by the Spirit of God. Now, as I went through these this afternoon, I came up with, and don't be alarmed by this, okay? There are 15 attributes that Paul piles into these verses, and he divides them up very uniquely. They're in three categories of five. The first five are reflective of the character of Christ. The second five resemble the attitude of action. You know, as I was saying, I think it was Sunday night, or maybe it was, was it, I think it was, yeah, I think it was Sunday night, about the mark of, of poor attitude that is so permeating our culture. We have, we have a bah, humbug, furrowed brow attitude. And, and what, Christ, what Paul is saying here is that the attitude of Christ, the attitude of action, is demonstration of a, of a character of conversion. We'll see those in the, in the middle five. And the last five is conviction. Conviction for life and ministry. So look at the first. Heart of compassion. Verse, still in verse number 12. Put on a heart of compa- compassion. What does this mean? This simply means that it is an internal seat of emotion. It is, as the Old Testament says, bowels of mercy. It's like that, that pit of your stomach, heart of compassion. It's deep inside of you. You have a yearning to be compassionate. Then he says kindness. 
this word here means a pervading goodness. A, a, it's a mark of one's character towards others. It's just this, you know, whenever you get around other people, whether they be your friend or your enemy, there's this goodness that is emanating from you. It's pervading who you are. And we have a big cry today that says, look, love your neighbor, love your neighbor, love your neighbor. The rest of what Jesus said is also love your enemy. We're, we're forgetting that part. We, we are called to love your neighbor, but we're also called to love your enemy. This is much harder to do. Humility. Oh boy. Humility. One of the marks, one of the, one of the defining marks of a false teacher is brazen pride. Brazen, unhinged pride. If you find yourself a false teacher, you will find pride. It is, it is self-love. And Paul says, as a Christian, the character of conversion it's humility here in verse 12, which means a, it is the welcomed opposite of self-love. That's what pride is. Pride means I love me. <laughs> Could you imagine telling somebody that? I love me. <laughs> it's like, okay, you're weird. But a lot of people, their lives just stink of pride. They might as well walk around with a shirt that says, I love me so much. It's this, it's this pride that's like the satanic uh, mark of false teachers. There's gentleness. And, and I was so happy to find this. You know how I've defined gentleness before? I've defined gentle, excuse me. Um, the, the same term for gentleness is meekness. And I've defined meekness for you. I've said it's like the Hoover Dam. Have you ever heard me say that? It's like the Hoover Dam. It's power under control. But I found a definition this afternoon that just made me go, oh, how did I never see it that way? Meekness is power under control, but why does it have to be under control? That's the deeper pressing question. Yes, it is power under control. Meekness is not weakness. Meekness is, listen to this definition. It is a willingness to suffer injury or insult. Oh, it is a willingness to suffer injury or insult. Who was the best at Defining meekness. Jesus Christ. We are never more like Christ than when we forgive and when we're meek. Willing to suffer insult and injury. How about this one? I have to turn my page. The next one is patience. Man, if Paul hasn't stuck you yet like he stuck me this afternoon, I'm thinking to myself, oh boy, Paul, how am I going to get out of this alive? He says, patience. We're only at five. There's 15. Patience, long-suffering, trust in the Lord. It is exactly the opposite of quick anger. It is the exact opposite of lighten the fuse. It is the exact opposite of, of jumping to conclusions. There's a patience. How do we have patience? Patience comes from knowing who God is at his word and trusting that he is in control of everything. Everything. From governments to fish. From wars to peace. He is in control of everything. And when we begin to see that, that there's not one maverick molecule in the entire universe, we can have patience. Patience for God to work in the lives of people where, he know, where, he, where we see that he will be working. Be praying for people. Be praying for the lost. This leads us to our uh, subheading. Number two, attitude. Attitude of action. 
Now we're going to move quickly here. Bearing with one another. This is, this is uh, challenging to me. It was to me anyway this afternoon. I pray this to you. What Paul is saying here is that when we bear with one another, picture it like this. It is the type of endurance that means enduring great difficulties. Picture it like this. Two fellow soldiers come under the arms of a wounded soldier. And they are literally with bombs going off around and bullets zinging by their head. They are carrying their fellow soldier. That's what this means. It means that it, as, the, as the war is going on around you, you are not going to leave a Christian soldier behind. You are going to bear up underneath them and carry them through the war, carry them through the battle in order to get them to safety. That's what this means. We, we, listen, we've been wounded, right? I mean, it, it, there's, there's been times where we've been greatly hurt. And where do you go? Are you going to go to the world and try to find that bearing up under? Are you going to find that in, in a bar? You're not going to find it anywhere else in the world except for the church. When true Christians come underneath and carry and pick up with the bullet zinging over your head, carrying that wounded soldier to safety. Where's the safety? Straight into the arms of Christ. Straight to the cross. Straight to the gospel. Forgiving. Forgiving. This means, it literally translates giving grace. Why? Because grace has been shown to you forgiving each other. Verse 13, whoever has a complaint against anyone just as the Lord. He, he doesn't like leave any room here. It's like two bookends right in the middle of verse 13. He says, whoever has a, has a complaint against anyone, <laughs> any complaint against anyone, what are you supposed to do? You're supposed to, as the Lord forgave, so also should you. There it is. Forgive. Someone, but you don't understand this person hurt me deeply. Forgive them. But what if they do it again? Forgive them. This isn't easy. Yes, <laughs> you're right. But remember, it's Christ who forgave you infinitely more than anyone has ever hurt you. Christ has forgiven you. Okay, love. Oh boy, it just keeps getting better. It's like Paul is just cranking the heat. He says, beyond, verse 14, beyond all these things, above it all, just as in 1 Corinthians 13, beyond all these things, put on agape love. This agape love is love in action. It's not just love of word, it's love in action. It's a mark, it's a characteristic. It is a character of conversion. Love, which is the perfect bond of unity. Oh man, I wish we could amplify our love. I would consider this church to be a loving church. What if we were more loving? If we ever get to the point where we say, nah, you know, I think we're good. <laughs> Look out. That's when we need to say, no, I'm gonna fight to love my brothers and sisters in Christ. I'm gonna to fight to love the unlovable. It's easy to love those that love you. It's harder to love those who hate you. And God has called us to do both. Okay, uh, moving again quickly here, verse 14. This is the, love is the perfect bond of unity. Let the peace of Christ, there it is. Peace means harmony, tranquility, relational tenderness and joy. Let the peace of Christ Dwell in you richly, rule in your hearts to which indeed you were called. This is what you've been called to do, to be peacemakers. Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount, blessed are the peacemakers, right? Yeah. We are to be peacemakers. Blessed are the peacemakers. It's the mark of Christ. Indeed, you are called to this, to one body to be, and be thankful. 
There's the other element. Thankfulness, gratefulness, appreciation, mindful of gifts. Be thankful. Verse 16, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. This brings us to our third subheading. Conviction. The next five are conviction for life and ministry. Where does it all begin? I would say that as this passage interprets, verse 16 is somewhat of a hinge point. He says, let the word of Christ dwell within you. Let it dwell in you richly. Let the word of Christ dwell within you with all wisdom, teaching, and admonishing. There's three right there. Bang, bang, bang. Wisdom. What's wisdom? Wisdom is the understanding of who God is. Wisdom is the knowledge of God or the truth of God. What's teaching? Now, when we come here, what I, I would consider what I'm doing with you right now, I'm teaching. I'm preaching, yes, I'm exhorting, but there must be a teaching element. A lot of people, whenever they come to church, they say, no, I don't want this teaching stuff. Why is it always learning? Why is it always brain activity? Because the Bible says to teach. The Bible says to teach, be teaching and admonishing. By the way, this word admonishing, it means warn. It means warn. It means, to, for, it means that I need to stand before you and say, be on guard. As, Potter, as Peter said, uh, be, be, be on guard against your adversary, the devil, who's like a roaring lion walking about, seeking whom he may devour. You need to be on guard. How do we do this? Admonishing one another with psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, singing and making uh, with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And this is kind of a cap-all statement in verse 17. He says, whatever you do, whatever you do. Remember, Paul's in prison. Whatever you do, in word or deed, in action, in word or action, whatever you do, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks through him to God the Father. What a, what a powerful way to just end that section of scriptures right there. And it's just the middle of the chapter. He says, whatever you do, everything you do needs to have your eyes on who Christ is and what he has done. Whatever you do, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. However you act, however you live, live consistently. This is, this is so important, and this is the application. Live consistently with who Jesus is and what he wants. If I were to ask you the question tonight, as we, leave, as we close this time, what is it that Jesus wants in your life? Was it, what is it that he wants from you? What is his desire for you? It, 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 and really, only you can answer this question, but in a, in a roundabout and, and uh, uh, kind of a blanket statement application, he wants you to live for his glory. He wants you to live for him. How do you live for his glory? According to what he has set forth in his word. In John chapter 6, verse 63 it is the spirit who gives life and life profits nothing. The words that I have spoken to you, Jesus says, the words that I have spoken to you are spirit and are life. Your life is wrapped up entirely. It must be wrapped up in this book. The word of God, the, the truth of scripture, pointing you to the king of kings. That's really what this is all about. If, if you do what, what I did this afternoon, this afternoon, I challenge you to, to go home and read this whole book. 
Colossians chapter, Colossians 1 through 4. It, it'll maybe take you, if you're a slow reader like me, it'll maybe take you like an hour. Okay? It's really not that hard. You're probably a much faster reader than me, so it's going to take you much less time. But me, I see every little nugget here, and I'm like, oh, oh good, highlighter, bang, 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 bang. I'm, I'm looking and marking everything, and I say, this is so good. He, he gets to a point where Paul is talking about, in chapter 4, he's, he's talking about being solely sold out and devoted because of how short this life is. I mean, if you really think about it, guys, how short is this? I mean, we're only here for like a blip on the radar. It's not even a sand granule in the grand scheme of time. Isn't it wondrous to think we are to set our eyes on things above and not on things in this world that pass away? In Christ, Jesus is our life. He is your life. He must be your life. And this is so much more than just two and a half hours on a Sunday or a Wednesday night. This is every day, all day. It is the character of our conversion. That's all I have.